So this morning we begin a new series called Building a People of God. It's based on Nehemiah 8 to 13, and it seems rather appropriate to be coming to this Uh, considering where we are as a church and what we have gone through as a country and where we find ourselves. After a year of lockdowns and restrictions, we have an opportunity before us, a real opportunity to consider what it means to be a church. It's never before we have been reminded that it is not that we meet in this building that holds us together as a church. It is not that we simply share the same space almost by happenstance for a couple of hours a week. As a church, we find ourselves, once again, like every other church, having to come before God and listen to God and wonder indeed what it is he is calling us to do indeed wonder what it is we are supposed to be, what it should look like to be church. And we should do this in front of God in all humility as we wonder what is our role in Aberdeen. And so over the next few weeks and indeed months, this is something that we're going to be thinking about as a church. This is something that we need to really wrestle with as a church going forward. Uh, However, uh, in case some of you zone out in some of the sermons, uh, or if I fail to communicate myself effectively, what this all means, this and you'll hear the word revitalization, you'll hear it, it's a good word, but at its core, what it really means is one single command. It all boils down to one thing. To love one another. We are reminded again and again that this is the core of what it means to be a church. Any thought that you have as to what this church should be, what it could be, what it should do and could do, needs at its bedrock this command of God to love one another. When we're thinking of things like revitalization, when we hear that word, when you hear that great big long word, when you hear it, you should hear immediately, how is it that we love one another? How do we go about it? How is it that I, in practice, in reality, show you that love? That's a big question. (laughs) I'm going to take our time answering this question. We're going to really look into a lot of the details as to what we do here to really wonder what it is to be a church that loves one another. Now, you may then think, William, why are you starting with the book of Nehemiah? You see, the book of Nehemiah is very often associated with the building of walls and things. And that was a remarkable achievement, the building of the walls. However, that is finished by the end of chapter 6. You've still got more than half of the book to go. And so the book of Nehemiah continues. And in chapter 7, there's some organizing of the people. You know, start counting people and looking at their gifts, what what they were bringing. But having built the walls, the rest of the book goes on to the thing which is probably most significant for us right now, today, in this place. You see, having built the walls, the book then concentrates on building a people. That's what we have from chapter 8 onwards. And so the second half of the book naturally demands our attention when we come to God and ask, what does it mean to be your people? What does it mean to come through an experience and then come before you and ask, who are we supposed to be? 
Now, Nehemiah 8-10 to is one unbroken section. It's got one overarching theme. It's got one clear intent. Uh, over the course of these three chapters, we have uh, three assemblies. People meet on three separate days. There are three readings of the book of Yahweh. Three exhortations to action and Really importantly, there are three immediate responses from the people who, hearing the word of God, respond. You see, the word of God, it defines who they're supposed to be. It tells them who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, what it means to love one another. But the word of God does not just simply go out and inform. It does not simply just go out and and give you some sort of uh, joy of knowing something extra. The word of God goes out and it demands a response from each and every one of us. The word of God goes out and it says, this is who you're supposed to be. That's what it did in the book of Nehemiah. And it is no surprise that it will be the same for us. But having told them who they're supposed to be, the book also says, what are you going to do about it? Which lands on us again today. Uh, One interesting thing about these chapters 8 to 10 in the book of Nehemiah is that they completely interrupt the story. Uh, The story is going along quite happily to chapter 7, and it will continue from chapter 11. It, It just abruptly enters in. It interrupts the story, and it does so for good reason. It serves a purpose. So let me reiterate it. You know, the book of Nehemiah up until that point has been uh, concerned for the city of God, the broken walls, the ruined gates, the the shattered temple that was lying derelict. Uh, Each of these were like an open sore on the reputation of God in the land. The world could look at the place where God had chosen to dwell and they could see a ruin. And so the text has been concerned with rebuilding the physical city of God. And so now at this point, the walls, the temple, the gates, they have been rebuilt. There's a declaration to all of the nations that God has returned. But ultimately, all of that would have been worthless. Utterly pointless. If the place where God really resided, if the people were unchanged. And so as we see, that place where God wishes to dwell in his people, as he does today, needs to be rebuilt. They need to be rebuilt as a community that reflects him. And so before the people get sent out in chapter 11 to go live in the land, their very identity as the people of God needs to be re-established. Uh, and that is the focus of chapters 8 to 10. It is the reason that those chapters are there as God rebuilds his people. So let me make this clear. God rebuilt his people through the word of God. They don't do it through a, a charismatic leader. Uh, they don't do it through a, a group of wise elders. Uh, instead, God rebuilds the people through the word of God. It is the Bible that tells them who they're supposed to be. It is the text that reveals the very heart of God. It reveals the person that they are supposed to reflect. It allows them to discover once again who they're meant to be in action and witness. And of course, it is healthy for us to consider, as a community, who we are. 
you know, it's, it's wonderful. When we start to think who we are, it opens up our minds, it opens up our hearts, it opens up this church to the possibilities of who we could be in the power of God. It is a good thing to consider who we are and what we could be if we listened to him, if we followed him, if we reflected him. It makes us think what we could become together, defined by the word of God, building up each other, witnessing to all the nations, to the greatness of our God. And that's the purpose of Nehemiah 8 to 10. That's its purpose. So do not be surprised if that very purpose lands with us here right now today. So the first assembly in verses uh, 1 to 3 uh, technically, it, it's 1 to 12. Let me just read out again the first three verses. As we see these people coming, hungry for the word of God, willing to hear and be changed by it. This is what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the Torah of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Israel the priest brought the Torah before the assembly, before men and women and all those who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of all the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the Torah. So how interesting it is that the people themselves want access to the word of God. Uh, this is not a scenario where you've got a leader standing there kind of haranguing the people, uh, trying to slip in a bit of the Bible. Um, you know, he's not producing a bland uh, homily that has a, a secret bit hidden in there, like, um, like you would mash up some vegetables and hide it, you know, into a tasty meal for a recalcitrant toddler. That's, that's not what's going on here. The people are desperate to hear the word of God. They're hungry to find God, and they are changed by God as a result. Uh, verse 2 tells us that the people assemble, the men, the women, all of those who are old enough to understand. Importantly here, the gathering does not prevent any from joining. There is no consideration of the value of the hearers. There's no debarring of people. They weren't found wanting in terms of ethnicity or class, uh, social standing, skills, interests, wealth, or any of the other characterizations or, or, or characteristics or any of the things that very often as human beings we think are more important. Everyone was welcome. Everyone was to hear the word of God. It was available to all, and that's why they chose the water gate. You'll notice that it's repeated twice, just to make the point. They meet at the water gate. They don't meet in the temple, on the temple precincts. You see, if they met there, then there would be some debarring of some of the people. And instead, they go and they meet in the streets, because the gospel is available for everyone. It is available to all. You know, the very same gospel that we have received and that we seize hold of is available to everybody, regardless of what we may think of them, regardless to the extent that they would fit in here, for example, regardless of their position in society, regardless of the fact that some people who Christ died for may well make a mess of our neat church. <laughs> the gospel is available for all. And so the people here go out to make sure that the gospel really is made available to all. Now, I, I say this, and I think of ourselves as I say this. 
But it's not unique to us. Every church can have this problem. Did you know that the early church, the New Testament church, had this very problem? So of course we're going to have it. Human beings naturally erect barriers between ourselves. We erect barriers between the gospel and the people who need to hear it. We naturally do that. We erect barriers between ourselves so that the effect, the power of the gospel in lives that are changed is thwarted so that we don't love one another. It is a natural human thing that needs to be torn down. And in the early church, in the New Testament, we see in Acts, we see in Galatians, we see in Colossians, we see in a number of places. Early Christians would erect cultural barriers. They would try and create barriers between the lost and their saviour. People were not welcome unless they were circumcised, unless they ate the right things, unless they observed the right feasts. And you know what? God ignored them. Uh, While they were so busy with all of these sorts of things, what was God doing? God ignored them, he ignored their protests, and he saved the Gentiles anyway. And so churches were getting started in Samaria, Antioch. There were people saved in the Roman army and beyond. And what is really interesting is that the church itself was in danger of being left behind because God was still moving. That was the early church. Do not believe that we could possibly be immune to such problems ourselves. God is going to do something. And we need to be listening to him so we can have the joy of taking part. You know, there's plenty of barriers that we erect. It, it, it happens. And we should be mindful of the command to love one another. We, we, we do. We erect barriers for those outside, but... Really badly. We, we erect barriers between us that stop us from loving one another. And to be honest, there is no room for that in the plan of God. Every barrier that we erect only serves to leave us behind as he moves. So verse 3 then tells us the attitude of the hearers to the word. The Hebrew term there uh, doesn't just simply say that there was a reading. There was a reading that was intended for understanding. There was a reading that was intended to be owned by the hearers. The word of God was to be taken deep inside. This is no time for a simple reading of the text. There is no time for just going through the motions of having a bit of a reading. At this point, you cannot have an empty recital that just washes over the congregation without causing a real effect. And so the ears are attentive. Their their understanding is focused. And as a result, their lives are changed. That is the power of the Word of God when we are open to it. And at a time when the very identity of the people was being established and they're wondering who they're supposed to be as the people of God, they turn to the Word of God, taking personal ownership of a common vision laid out in the text. That is the only hope for the community, not a great leader or a group of gifted individuals, but for everybody to receive the word of God and act upon it. Now, we do not have the luxury of an empty word today. (laughs) This church is no more fixed, no more permanent, and no less beholden to the leading of God than it was for those exiles and every church since. You know, we don't have the opportunity to to absolve responsibility, outsource all these things to a leader or a group of gifted individuals. 
Uh, one of the reasons we really love Ezra uh, and, and the type of leader Ezra is, and I know that's a whole other sermon that I'll do someday, but I, I love the leadership style of Ezra because Ezra has a lot of responsibility. Ezra has a lot of power and he just gives it all away. Ezra's not interested in keeping it all to himself. He, he tries to equip everybody else. He, he teaches everybody else so that they can act on the word of God. A particularly gifted leader, and I'm not talking about myself, <laughs> but a particularly gifted leader may be able to preach and teach. He may be able to, to visit and comfort and plan and pray for us. But when I look around this room and I'm mindful of all the people at home, there is no way that one individual could, could reach everybody. He cannot comfort all who mourn. He cannot encourage all who are weary. He cannot correct all who go astray. He might, through the grace of God, profoundly change a life in a week, given sufficient opportunities, given sufficient grace. He might reach a few who need to hear of Christ as their personal redeemer. He might be able to come alongside some who need Christ as a comforter or instruct those in need of Christ the teacher. But it is not enough. That is never enough. All of us need to respond. Each of us need to see that we are to be the reflection of God on earth. When I was a wee boy, uh, I remember in, in primary school, a, a young primary school, I remember being in a class and we were all told to draw somebody that loves us. It was part of a, of a project, you know, people who look after us, etc. And most of us uh, drew our mum, some of us drew our dad, I think one or two may have drawn a grandparent just to be different. And then there was one wee girl in the corner who did differently. I remember the teacher going round, round the back and she was asking you know, to, to the wee girl, who, who are you drawing? And she just answered, I'm drawing God. And Kathy's drawing. And of course, the teacher looked quite confused. Uh, and she said to the wee girl, but, but no one knows what God looks like. And she, of course, she, being a wee girl, she just turned around and said, I, they will as soon as I'm finished. <laughs> Loved that. You know, most of the people in Aberdeen will never hear the gospel. But they'll see you. They'll see the lives that you live. That's the only gospel most people in Aberdeen today are going to hear. That's the only God they're going to see. And so we are called to have a life that is transformed by God. Not by our own strength, not by trying hard enough, but transformed by God. And specifically Jesus in John 13, 35, really puts it perfectly, just hits it on the head when he says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is a need for a response from all of us, a response towards God, as we saw in verse 6. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. And what's interesting is that the people respond in tears because they recognize they are not what they're meant to be. Uh, the people weep because they recognize that they have fallen so short of what they are meant to be, and so they start to weep. It may be tempting today to feel that way. But as you notice in the text, 
Today is not the day for that. Instead, we have a day of rejoicing. We as a church can rejoice at what God has done, but we can rejoice because of what God is going to do. He is not finished with us. He is indeed calling us, and we need to listen. It is a day of rejoicing because God is speaking to us. He is inviting us to take part in what he is going to do and not to be left behind. And so verse 13, as we continue through, introduces the second of the three assemblies, which takes place the following day. And again, the people do so uh, in their own volition. They recognize their need of the word of God, and so they come. And, uh, you know, they have read to them a text on the Feast of Tabernacles. And it challenges the hearers. And once again, it inspires action. And once again, inspires a rejoicing. Uh, There's an interesting note in um, Nehemiah 8, verse 17, uh, which I just want to highlight before I go on to my conclusion. Now, often this verse is, uh, it can seem as if they had had never done this festival since the time of Joshua. That's not quite what's meant. Uh, We know that they uh, had this festival. We see it, Solomon does it in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 8, and the the verses following, chapter 8, verse 13, uh, Hosea in chapter 12, verse 9, even in Ezra, which chronologically happens just before this, in chapter 3, 1 to 4, the feast is carried out. What's going on here is that because of their experiences as exiles, when they come back, they are able to do this feast, able to, to have this festival in a way which has such resonance with those early Exodus people that it was unlike any other time that they had celebrated it. And I think that's really interesting. You know, when we hear words like um, revitalization, um, it is important to recognize that sometimes there are things that we have been doing that can be changed, uh, that can be revived, that can be renewed, because the people are renewed. Because the people come and dedicate themselves once again to God. It is the people that make the difference. Now, when it came to writing a conclusion on that, it was quite difficult. You know, I have to think, I have to consider, I have to wonder. I've been praying and praying and praying, what of us? What about us? Are we going to hear the word of God? But are we just going to go unchanged from that experience? Or will we dedicate ourselves once again to being in the service of God? Uh, Do we once again look at the word of God and say, this is who we're supposed to be and plead that he would change us? Are we willing to respond? You know, uh, though we're thinking of revitalization, you know, churches are always at a crossroads. Every day we're at a crossroads, always needing to see how we can be the people of God a bit more, a bit better. And it's actually a blessing that this has been brought to the fore. It's a blessing for us to really, you know, not just go through the motions, not just simply do what we always do, but to really look to God and say, what is it we're supposed to be? What we do here makes a difference. Um, I... I'm not delivering some nice words or some encouraging words necessarily, you know, if they're just there for a few moments. I am really hoping that what you hear this morning awakes something within you, that it compels you to action. It propels you into the world, change and affecting change. It impels you 
towards our brothers and sisters here to comfort those who mourn, to come along those, alongside those who are weary, to share in the joy of those who are blessed and rejoice with those who are delivered. There's a very clear sense that God is calling to Hebron. We are to respond to him, and we need to respond. We need to think of ways of living up to that great command of loving one another. Now the danger, and this is why the conclusion was hard, the danger is, we listen to the sermon, (laughs) some of you may even think it was good, some of you may not, and at the end we go home and that's it, it's done, and we forget it. And this challenged me, this rather tormented me, this idea that, that this opportunity that we have could be lost. You could listen to a sermon that you think, that sounds great, but it doesn't really include me. When we're called upon to love one another, I need each of you. I need every single one of you. When it comes to fulfilling this, I can't do this on behalf of a church. That's not how this works. Love one another. And so given that the torment, I thought, well, actually, perhaps I should do that one thing that, that, that is very, very difficult. Perhaps I should be completely open, completely honest. So for myself, over the last year, I recognize it's been difficult for many of us. Over the last year, I have had COVID. I've had long COVID. I've had two rather nasty episodes of anaphylaxis, one of which required hospitalization. I've had a bout of pneumonia and a ruptured Achilles in one year. (laughs) In that year, which was difficult for all of us, as you'll appreciate, it came with homeschooling with four kids. My wife's work was really out of control with the amount of hours that she had to do. It also came with the death of some really close friends, of some people in this congregation. And like many people, I lost a year. Like the year was gone, it was ruined, it was destroyed. A year where success was measured by simply getting to the next day. where, until very recently, success was still measured in simply getting to the next day. And in that year of 14 months, in that year, five people asked how we were. Over a year. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, <laughs> uh, there were other people that contacted me. If I was to actually total up the number of people that asked me, why are you not doing enough? Why, why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Why, why are you just not enough? And they were right. <laughs> but all I could focus on was trying to get to the next day. Love one another. To be honest, it's not good enough. This is not good enough when we are called to love one another. Because over the last month, I've also been listening to some of your stories. 
And I realize that my experience is not unique. I realize that I'm not odd in all of this. So my question then is, what are we going to do? Because actually, I don't want a time of mourning. I'm not going to have, we're not good enough, and leave it there. That's not the point of this morning. The point of this morning is, this is where we are, but God is calling us to be something better. God is calling on us to do something. And so the question is, what are we going to do? And actually, that's not something that I, or even the elders as a whole, can simply just tell you. (laughs) There's there's going to be opportunities to encourage. There's going to be opportunities to start putting things in place. There's going to be opportunities to start doing things. But ultimately, what are we going to do? Is the question. I genuinely care what you think. And so, uh, behind me, I'm going to have my email address put up there. That's, that's, that's my email address. If my story resonates with you and you think, actually, I know how that feels, let me know. I care. I, uh, tell me what I've missed in your life over the last year when I've not really been around. I I try and pray for you all every week. And most of the time, they're quite vague prayers. (laughs) Most of the time, uh, when I'm thinking of of any of you, they're quite vague in their nature. They're well meant. But I want to know. Let me know. So I can pray better. If the call of God on this church resonates with you, if you think, yes, we can do better, there's my address. Send me your suggestions. (laughs) If you've got an idea on how we make this better, if you pray and pray and pray and think before God and you think, actually, I've got an idea, let me know. I'm serious when I say that we need to do this. All of us. Love one another. An actual fact, if you just want to see how I'm doing, (laughs) if you just want to ask, how are you, (laughs) feel free. I don't think we have a culture where we do feel free. I I don't believe there is a badness. I don't believe there is a meanness. I believe that we have barriers that we have erected so that good people can't love one another. And I want that to change. Because I believe that God is calling on us and the barriers that we erect leave us behind. So as I say, this is not a time for mourning. This is not a time for looking at how we fail. This is a time to listen to God and rejoice because what he has done is given us a chance to be who we are supposed to be, all of us, to respond and cry, Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we we come with uh, a range of emotions. We come with, I certainly hope, but we come with hope because we look to you and we recognize that you are the God who can do anything. You are the God who can do more than we can imagine. You are the God who transforms. You are the God of gospel power that changes lives. So Lord, change us. Let us be like that picture reflecting you to Aberdeen. Let the people see the power of the gospel in the lives that we live. And despite all of the excuses that we have, despite all of the restrictions and barriers that are there, we pray, O Lord, that you would break through 
And let us make a difference. And all of it for your glory. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.